Hello, everyone. Today on the Buddhist Recovery Network podcast, we have an inspiring story by Kim, who speaks about her experience through the 12 steps. She speaks about her Italian family and her upbringing, her queerness in the rooms, and having community during this global pandemic. Before I play the interview, I'd like to thank everyone who made it to the Buddhist Recovery Network Academy this month with Kevin Griffin celebrating 35 years sober. Our next academy is with Portland-based Buddhist teacher, my dear friend and master of gratitude practices, Gary Sanders. His BRN Academy teaching will be taking place live the first Sunday in August, August 2nd at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. UK time. You can find his bio and Facebook event link on our website. BuddhistRecovery.org. Also, the first ever Recovery Dharma Conference is happening the end of July this month, July 31st through August 2nd. So you can register by donation at RecoveryDharma.org. Just click the Sangha Summit 2020. Uh, It will be held entirely online. At the summit, you can build and deepen your practice learn more about recovery dharma, get involved, and be prepared for tons of fun and community. One! One! (laughs) So... Hi, Kimby. It's really great to actually be having a conversation with you, a conversation with an old mate. Yeah. I know. It's wonderful to actually be having a conversation. And with a reason, it's even better. (laughs) And it's interesting. um, I I mean, we've only known each other um, in recovery, and I want to really talk to you about your, yeah, how you got into recovery. Oh, that's lovely. Um, I've been uh, clean and sober now for just over 25 years. Wow. um, I don't think I knew. I always say I didn't know I was an alcoholic until I tried to stop drinking and then I realized I was an alcoholic. Or I was a workaholic uh, striving to be an alcoholic and one day I woke up and realized I was both. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think part of what it was was I... I literally, by the time I quit drinking, had probably been drinking a full bottle of scotch a day, every day for 10 years, I think. Um, you know, there's, there was, uh, you know, part of what I did for a living at the time working in theater was there was a lot of, you know, drinking after work and you'd sit around at the bar at the theater and you'd, you know, have a couple scotches or you'd have a couple drinks and then you'd go home or, oh, it's a day off. I think I'll have a couple drinks or, you know, and one thing would lead to the other. And, you know, I literally would look at it and kind of go, I, I, I drank a lot of scotch. And I think some of the things that I realized in my problem range of why I would have got, why I would have stopped was, you know, those little, those little telltale signs, you know, being 16 and being brought home by the police for being caught drinking. And then, you know, being in, in university and, um, you know, doing things that, that we would refer to as pitiful and comprehensible demoralization. Right. Um, and knowing that my entire life, I think I felt 
that restless, irritable, and discontentness. So, you know, combine those two things together and you've got a lot of bad instances and bad life choices, I guess. So I guess through the process of, you know, my 20s, I just, um, I think the drinking was partly, drinking and drugs is my story, but I think partly what it was was the just not wanting to feel. Um, probably initially, I don't want to feel, I, you know, let's give me something to cover up that feeling or don't know how to feeling. So have a feeling. So give me something and we'll cover up that feeling with it. And somewhere in that process, what started off as um, a relief or a fun became a, a habit that turned into a necessity, if that makes sense. Right. And um, before you go on, I just really wanted to ask you, how did you try to stop? Because that's what you said, you tried to stop. And I'm really curious, how did you try to stop? Um, in AA, we talk a lot of, in recovery, we talk a lot about, um, you know, the things that we do to try and convince ourselves that we don't have a problem. So there's a whole um, a passage within the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that talks about, you know, we switched to brandy, we took a day off, we, you know, only drank in the morning, we only drank at night, we you know, health farm sanitariums, we, you know, switched, you know, all these things. And so I think if I look at that list, I probably tried all of those things. You know, I, I made a geographic move from Ontario to BC thinking, well, if I just move, my life will change. And of course, you know, everything's still the same. And then I would try to, um, you know, only drink on weekends, which of course the weekend would then become Friday through Monday. And then it was like, well, if I'm not drinking scotch, maybe if I'm just drinking beer, no, okay, well, then if I have beer, then I can add in a scotch because I'm really not just <laughs> drinking scotch. And then there's the idea of, well, you know, maybe if I just drink brandy or vodka, then I'm not really an alcoholic because I'm not drinking what I normally drink. Or, you know, so there was, there was a lot of things that I would try to do to convince myself that I wasn't an alcoholic. Or I would try and just say, oh, I, I cannot drink for, you know, a couple weeks. And, and then there was always that reason of kind of going, well, yeah, I can. I can. I can drink. It's fine. I'm fine. Look, there's nothing wrong with me. It's all good. So I think a lot of it was not acknowledging the extent of the alcoholism or the addiction that I had. I think a lot of the times I would realize that things weren't always great around that, but I was afraid, I think, to admit that I was completely powerless over it, you know, and I don't think I was able to do that until I actually finally stopped or attempted to stop for the first time. Well, let, let's look at that when you first attempted to stop, because you say, you know, you've been in recovery, you've been abstinent, you say clean and sober for 25 years. Mm -hmm. What what support was out there 25 years ago for somebody who was struggling with alcohol and drugs? What was out there for people? I don't think I knew of anything that was out there. All I had at the time was a, a next door neighbor to where I lived. It was a, I was living in a, a lesbian co-op at the time. And my next door neighbor... I knew was sober. And I remember her kind of dropping the seed and saying, you know, if you ever want to get sober, you know, if you ever want to stop drinking, you know, I really like you, but I can't understand a word you're saying, you know, because I was always drunk. <laughs> so, um, you know, she would drop that seed, but there was not really any other, you know, attachment to that. What made me or brought me to the decision to quit was not even acknowledging necessarily the full-blown alcoholism or addiction i was with my partner at the time and i were you know we were kind of like the cool aunties that lived in this lesbian co-op and we decided oh gee you know why don't we have kids we can think about having kids and the idea at the time i was quite heavily into other substances into 
cocaine in specific. And so we had kind of said, well, look, maybe if we can stop doing drugs for a year, then maybe we can think about, you know, having children or adopting or fostering. Or whatever. Um, so that was the original intention was let's just quit doing it so that we can have this as a payback. I'm not even thinking of the addiction part of it. I remember That's my so last. Funny. That's yeah. so funny when you talk about um, having children because you have yeah. dogs. <laughs> well, I <laughs> did. I didn't children. have any dogs at the time. I think I probably had a cat at the time. Who knows? I did have a cat at the time. I didn't have dogs in my life until more recently. So here I was thinking, because we were the cool aunties. All the kids in the co-op would come over and hang out with, you know, Auntie Kim and Auntie Julie. So that was the thought. And I, it was New Year's Eve was the last kind of big blowout. And I remember doing far too many drugs and far too much drinking and, you know, that whole thing. But like, this is it. This is going to be our last night of doing drugs. Not even thinking about the alcohol. And then the very next day, it was New Year's Day, and we went off to the, one of the gay bars. And... um thinking, well, I'm not going to do drugs anymore, so I'm going to drink. So I think I, I had a beer, and it kind of tasted off. That's kind of skunky taste. So I brought it back up, quite you know, self-indignant, and oh, I can't have this. It's skunky. So they gave me another one, and I started to drink. And I'm like, this is bad, too. And about the time I got the third drink, third beer, I went to drink it, and there was that voice that came into my head that said, Kim, you're an alcoholic. Stop drinking. And that was it. That was as clear as the voice was. And I kind of went, all right, whatever. So I tried without having any support, not really knowing anybody or anything, other than this kind of thing that my neighbor had, you know, recommended to me. And I just didn't drink. But what happened was, you know, not drinking, not doing drugs. And then I was like, I, I can't smoke cigarettes. I can't eat. I can't. So there was that whole extreme that came in. There was no moderation of okay, well, I can do this, but I can't do that. So it was a really hard time. Through the work I had at the time, I ended up touring um, with a theater company and I was doing shows. And so for me, I thought, well, I could just drink near beer. So I kind of proceeded to drink near beer for probably a good six months of that time. And then at about six months of not, of abstaining, of not drinking, of not doing drugs, um, I got brought to my first AA meeting. And How I did remember- that happen? Because the next door neighbor had finally come to me and said, you know, we do this thing at AA where, you know, if you're celebrating a certain length of time of clean time or sobriety, we'll give you a little, you know, medallion or a chip to say, you know, congratulations on your three months, six months, nine months. And at that point, I would have had the equivalent of six months. So I went to the meeting and literally kind of walked in, sat on the floor at the back and, you know, nobody would know I was there. Of course, everybody would know that you're there because you're somebody new to the room and proceeded to get, you know, what would have been the equivalent of a six month chip. And isn't this great? And people said hi to me and hugged me and come back next week, which was all kind of very interesting for me because people didn't necessarily always want me around when I was drinking. So the fact that I was at this place that they were very welcoming was quite interesting to me. So I don't think I went to a lot of meetings. I think I probably went to you know, maybe one a week, maybe two a week if I was, you know, really focused on it. Um, didn't have a lot of support in the way of, it's not like I met a lot of friends and went, hi, I'm here. It was more just kind of like, you know, I was on the outskirts of it. I wasn't completely committed to being in it yet. And then fast forward to what would have been, you know, at this point, September, given that I quit drinking on New Year's. Um, Keeping in mind, I was still doing the near beer. Um, I, it was my birthday, my belly button birthday, and I was working a big corporate gig. 
And my nickname with this corporation was Boozer. So clearly everybody knew I had a drinking problem. So it was the end of the of the long day. It was my belly button birthday. My coworker came to me and said, Boozer, you know, you want a scotch? So I'm like, no, I'm not drinking anymore. And he's like, no, come on. I'm like, no, 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 I can't. And so next thing you know, he went off and got a couple of little, you know, those little bar scotches and a glass of water and some ice and brought it back and said, here you go. And I'm like, I can't drink this. He goes, why not? I said, I'm not drinking. He goes, oh, just have a drink. So I had my little six-month medallion in my pocket from when I had quit drinking or when I had gone to that 1A meeting. So I took it out of my pocket and handed it to my coworker, um, and he kind of put it in his eye like a monocle, and we had a big joke, and I <laughs> drank the scotch, and off I went, right? So that by this point in time, you know, I'm like, oh, this is great. So but then, you know, somewhere after that, I was finished touring and finished the gig, and I'd, you know, come in and out of AA, and I'd go to meetings, uh, you know, step meeting here or a home group meeting there, and just trying to find my way through the whole thing. And then come, I guess it was the January, which would have been my one year of being clean and sober, um, the same friend of mine who lived next door to me, you know, I said, hey, I'm going to be a year sober. You should give me my, you know, the cake to celebrate, which is what they do in AA up here in BC anyways. So I said, you know, hey, will you celebrate it with me? And she's like, well, I can't do that. And I said, why not? She said, well, because you haven't been sober the whole time. I said, doesn't say that anywhere that you have to be sober the whole time. It just says that you have to, you know, be an AA and I've been an AA. Um, you know, and so given AA that 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 tightness of what they believe to be recovery, there's not an abstinence side to it. There's just that you don't have a drink. Um, you know, and so somebody finally had to say it's about continuous sobriety one day at a time for 365 days. And that is what makes up makes up a year. So I was, you know, angry and I can't believe you're doing this to me. And don't you know, blah, 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 all that self-righteousness. And then at, uh, so instead at the, what would have been my one year, instead I went back and took a three-month chip or medallion to acknowledge that I really only had three months because I'd had that quote slip, right? How was it? How was it going back into a room and, you know, people knowing that you had slipped? How was that for you? Well, I think the hard part was knowing that I hadn't told anybody I had slipped because as far as I concerned, there wasn't, I didn't understand A enough to know what a slip was. I just knew I was in the program. And like I said, I wasn't going to a lot of meetings. I was just kind of like popping in and figuring things out. And nobody had said to me, don't drink, right? They're just kind of like, well, it's great that you're here, right? There was never that abstinent, don't touch anything, right? So I think I didn't really get it. I had a little bit of a wet brain probably too, but I didn't kind of get it at the time. So it wasn't until... You know, when I said, oh, give me my cake. And someone said, no, you can't do it. And I was like, but it doesn't say that anywhere. And nobody said that to me. And it's not in any of the books I've read. And, you know, we don't talk about that. So I think for me, there was a bit of a, a shock value to it of like, well, I don't believe you. I, I, nobody told me this. And, you know, maybe it was my own um, addict brain not wanting to listen if that was said to me. So there was a bit of shame about the fact that I hadn't understood properly there was a bit of a kind of like oh by the way i drank three months ago but i didn't think it was important to share that with you so to have to start doing that again but what did come out of it was the acceptance and the um fellowship that kind of surrounded me and said that's okay we're here you can have three months off we go um and i think that's actually what brought me closer into the program and realizing that i needed this and that I wasn't doing well on my own and I wasn't achieving what, you know, I would have liked to have or perhaps what AA thought I should have. That way. Before we, we talk more about the program, I'm just really curious. Um, 
When did you have your first drink? What was that like? I have no recollection of it, unfortunately. Um, I grew up in an Italian family, and of course, it was homemade Italian wine. Um, and I remember parts of it that I remember are that being a young child, um, you were often given homemade wine, and they would mix it with like you know, seven up or ginger ale or something. And part of it was like, you know, they get the kids a little drunk and aren't they cute and aren't they funny? And then of course we pass out and then the kids, the, the adults can go ahead and have the rest of their evening to themselves. And the kids are happily, you know, exhausted and sleeping somewhere. So it, it was a cultural thing. It wasn't even like a abusive thing. It was just, it was a cultural thing. Oh, look, the kids, they're fun. Oh, look, they're drunk. Oh, look, they're sleeping. Okay. You know, so I, I can't say I remember my first intentional drink. I know that I was drinking probably by the time I was 12 or 13. I remember doing the taking things out of my father's liquor cabinet and mixing, you know, a little scotch, a little brandy, a little vodka, a little, you know, that whole terrible swill and putting it in like a, I don't know, a pickle jar or something. And, you know, that was the cool thing. I was drinking out of that or you know, maybe sipping off dad's beer or somebody's homemade wine that their dad had made. And, you know, aren't we great? We're 12 and we're drinking, you know, their homemade wine. So I, I don't have a recollection of a first time I was drinking. I do know that the alcohol for me did temporarily take away that feeling of what I call the restless, irritable and discontent because I didn't, I didn't feel like I belonged. I didn't feel like I was mm. in the right skin or on the right planet or, I just constantly felt that restless, irritable, and discontent about everything. When I was 11, I'd actually had a fairly severe um, surgery. I had scoliosis as a child. So I was kind of abruptly pulled out of my school environment. And at the time, it was like, it was a, you know, a month in the hospital with the surgery, and then a couple months you're at home, and then a couple months you're back at school. And, you know, of course, by that point in time, kids are starting to date and figure out their sexuality and... You know, I was at home basically being homeschooled with a major back surgery. So I was already feeling that restless, irritable, and content, discontent. And then to be pulled out of kind of society and normal life and be figuring out sexuality and, well, I don't care that I'm not dating the boys. And, oh, well, you know, I'm not really this. And so it, it, it all kind of came at the same time. There was a bit of that realization of, I'm different and now I'm even more different and I'm really unhappy. So it all kind of looped in. I think that's also that time when we first start to come out too, that, you know, early teens where you start to figure out what's happening in the world and where you fit and where you don't fit, even if you don't consciously know it. I think at some point you kind of get this idea of what's happening. Do you have any um, memory of the first time you had a cigarette or took drugs? Um... I don't actually remember, I don't think I remember anything specifically. I know that when I was a teenager, late teens, I probably tried to smoke marijuana, didn't like it. Um, it just made me kind of feel like somebody was sitting on my chest. I remember not liking it. I remember, you know, doing hash or hash oil, and that was kind of the cool thing to do back in Northern Ontario. Um, but I can't say that it triggered me to feel any certain way or I know that when I first had cocaine it was something it was a high I wanted to chase it was that wanting to be up wanting to be on wanting to be mm. all of that stuff so there was a certain thing I wanted to chase and of course like the alcohol and like the cocaine they both brought you to that place but you couldn't sustain it you know there was mm. that that high of the cocaine but then you had to do more to keep going and more to keep going and of mm. course you know at some point it would run out 
that night or the next day or whatever it was. And same with the beer or the scotch or the whatever I was drinking is that you were always chasing that place where you just felt great and the glow was great. And then somehow you'd cross over the line and go into the blackout or go into the whatever it was of not remembering or of getting too drunk or, you know, and then as time went on, chasing that elusive, that moment where everything's great and everybody's happy, it, it's harder and harder to get to, right? So it, it that's kind of becomes the addiction takes over and it's like subconsciously you're constantly trying to find that place of not feeling like you're not a part of or not feeling like you don't fit in, right? So I can't say that I remember any, like my first drink of like, you know, the lights all got brighter and everything was wonderful. I just know that when I was drinking, especially for the first while, it, and drugging as well, I guess, it was always trying to chase that elusive feeling better about myself in the world. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And your family, were they, would you say that your parents had issues with alcohol or, or drugs at all? Or were they no, just normal drinkers? No, neither of my parents did. My mother's parents uh, both died of alcoholism by the time they were early 50s. So, oh, wow. um, did you know that? Were you told that? Was that the story told? told I don't to the think children? I knew it at the time. I knew that they drank. I remember, I mean, my first memories of my grandparents that I can conceive of were the smell of butane, the lighter fluid, so the, mm -hmm. uh, like a Zippo lighter, that mm -hmm. fuel, and then scotch. Those were my memories of my grandparents, and I was probably three, four at the time, maybe. Um, and who knows, I may have been, they may have been sipping me drinks anyways. But I remember that my grandmother passed away when I was about five, and my grandfather passed away when I was about six. And those are my only memories of them, was literally that kind of you know, lighter fluid and the smell of scotch. I don't have a lot of memories of them. How was but, that for you losing your grandparents at that age? Um, they didn't live very close to me. I don't think I understood. My father's mother passed away when I was three, so I didn't even know her. So I don't think I had that um, bond of having a, my grandparents around because I never had my mom's parents were the two who were the alcoholics, didn't live near us. They lived in Southern Ontario. We were in Northern Ontario. So I didn't have that, you know, oh, my granddaughter, oh, my grandma, you know, that kind of stuff. And then my father's mother and father had actually lived in the house. We were in Ottawa. She passed away. We moved back to Sault Ste. Marie. And what happened was she was gone when I was three, so I have no real memories of her. And then there was just my grandfather who was, you know, this old Italian man who, as far as I knew, had no way of taking care of himself and he'd been you know taken care of by his wife all those years so my grandparents were not something i was close to and i'd never really thought about the alcoholism as being something that i inherited from them until much later in my life so it was never like oh they died they were alcoholics i don't want to be one of them my mom didn't drink and i think for her consciously she didn't drink because she didn't want to be like them my father was just, you know, a normie. He could get a six pack of beer and put it in the fridge and, you know, have one and leave the rest of them. Or, mm -hmm. you know, every Christmas he would go and fill up the shopping cart with, you know, a bottle of gin, a bottle of vodka, a bottle of rye, you know, just in case somebody comes over to the house over Christmas. Or, you know, then throughout the course of the year, he'd be like, oh, I think I'll have a glass of rye tonight. I'll treat myself. So, you know, my father was a complete normie, total mm -hmm. normie guy he had his own issues but as far as alcohol and drugs were concerned he was a complete norm neither of my parents smoked cigarettes um my mother i think had some 
pretty big uh, issues as far as addiction stuff. I think being the adult child of an alcoholic, she kind of inherited some of those uh, behaviors, which I would consider alcoholic or alanonic or, you know, adult child of an alcoholic untreated. Like what behaviors would you say? Um, for her, there was a lot of, um, you know, we don't talk about it. Um, you know, we don't share about her feelings. She didn't know how to have feelings. Her way of dealing with feelings was making a big joke about it. You know, so my mother wasn't able to talk about feelings, which for me now in recovery, I know that one of the biggest things for me was I don't want to have a feeling. I want to cover it up. So here was my mother who came from an alcoholic home, not knowing how to have feelings and therefore she didn't want to have them. So a lot of times it was kind of like, oh, but this is happening. Mom and she go, oh, don't be silly. That's not really happening. And so for her, you know, much later in the years, I realized that, you know, food was probably an addiction for her. She would eat to cover up her feelings. Um, they weren't talked about in the house. There was a lot of kind of that underlying, you know, we don't talk about anything serious and don't let the neighbors know anything bad about us. And, you know, so all of that stuff as if when she was growing up in an alcoholic home of hiding that from the rest of the world, there was a lot of that that she carried with her into the adulthood, my, you know, growing up. Now, when I'm much older, I can also now look at and recognize more of her addictions were more around, you know, prescription drugs and food and, you know, things of like, well, I'm, I'm taking this prescription, this prescription, is this prescription. But if I take, you know, Rabaxaset and must, you know, or must relaxants Rabaxaset and sinus medication and this and that, then it'll be just enough to make me feel better. And, you know, so I, I can't. I can't say that my mother ever, you know, became addicted to Oxy or any of those things, but she certainly, you know, has had her share of using chemicals to help herself feel better or convince herself that it made her feel better. You know, and I could say that now, but, you know, I don't think I realized that until, you know, the last 10 years or so. Sure. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. I wanted to actually ask you, what was queer life like um, out in the clubs when you were into the alcohol and drugs? What was, you know, we're going back 25 years. What was, what was it like being queer? And, well, the, we wouldn't have even used the word queer 25 no. years ago. What no, would you have used? I was a little butch dyke, I think is what we called me, a little butch dyke or a little, you know, some, we even used lesbians back then. Oh, you know, my God, I'm going to put you in a museum, a butch yeah. dyke. I'm yeah, going to put you in a museum, happens. honey. There's so few of us left, hello. <laughs> But there wasn't shame about it then. Anyways, that's a whole other topic. So um, one of the things was, uh, you know, I remember that when I was, I don't know, it was 1989, so I would have been 24, uh, was when I moved across the country. But I think prior to that, I grew up in Northern Ontario. So I was coming out when I was probably 18, 19, 20. And for me, if you were, you know, in Sault Ste. Marie, if you were in a ball uniform or, you know, any kind of sporting uniform, you got into the bar, no problem. And, you know, at the time, I don't think I realized that the entire baseball team was queer. I was, you know, a little naive because it's a small town. And I think it was, wasn't until I was like 16 or 17 when I had asked to go on a ball tournament with my team. And my, both my parents and my friend's parents said, oh, no, you can't do that. They're all lesbians. And I'd never heard the term before. I didn't know what they were referring to. But, of course, these lesbians that I played baseball with were my friends were you know, my gay friends, and we would go to, you know, the Canadian for our jugs of beer afterwards. So my, my initiation into the queer bar wasn't really a queer bar. It was more of just hanging out with the, you know, the butch lesbians that played ball and we'd drink at the 
you know, the sports bar kind of thing in the small community. So it wasn't until I got away to, you know, Montreal and then Toronto, um, away from my small town where I was able to kind of go out to the bars and start to figure out that, you know, what is a gay bar and, and, and who are these people and do I drink and, you know, all of that stuff. And I remember being pretty overwhelmed by it because don't forget I came from a small town. So all of a sudden to be in this bar and it felt like, you know, going to the basement of the bar in Montreal, I remember, or, you know, it's kind of like this cave you had to go into and it was all very strange, and weird and, you know, and then just drinking and drinking far too much, I'm sure. And my strongest memories of drinking are when I did finally make it to Vancouver, um, pretty, I guess it was 89, I quit drinking in 93. So about four years before I quit. And I, my strongest memories of the bar scene were when I moved to Vancouver. Because I think prior to that, being in Montreal while I was in school and in a short time in Toronto, most of my drinking kind of escalated solo. I was working at Shaw Festival. I was working in the, in the stage manager. I was at home. I was drinking a bottle of scotch at night at home. So my experience in the gay bars didn't really happen until I got to Vancouver. So I was quite well into my alcoholic career, shall we say, by the time I discovered gay bars. And I actually ended up working in a gay bar in Vancouver for a while, kind of busing and cleaning tables and bartending a bit and working the door a bit. And I remember that time of it being, um, aren't we great? We've got this place to come. And, um, you know, there was a lot of playing pool or, um, you know, karaoke night or that kind of stuff, right? So it was more the lesbian bar. There was two at the time in Vancouver. Um, but the big kind of like celebrities, big dance bars kind of thing, you know, I'd go there, but it just, it just was too much. And so, you know, you just get too drunk and get carried away. You know, so I think that identifying with the gay and the drinking um, came at separate times or came at the same time, but didn't really escalate until I was well into my you know, my drinking career, shall we say. So but it was well through the bars here in, well, in Vancouver that I did start to get into the drugs because right. there was no drugs until I hit the gay bars and that's when it flourished. I was just wondering how welcoming were the rooms of 12 Steps to gay people 25 years ago? I was very, very lucky. Um, the My very first meeting that I told you about was the first official registered gay and lesbian meeting in North America. Wow. So the very first meeting that I believe happened or was down in San Francisco. Um, and then this meeting in Vancouver, there was a, a meeting called A2 as in the letter A and the number two, A2. And out of this group, uh, there was a fair number of people who had come into AA fairly young through uh, the young people in AA. And there was a fair number of them that had kind of moved from Montreal. There was this whole migration of all of these queers from Montreal who got sober and Vancouver. And um, so they decided to set up a separate meeting and it jokingly be called Gay2, G-A-Y2. So you would walk into this hall and there'd be, you know, a big butch lesbian or gay man standing at the doorway and based on you know your look or what they thought they'd say a2's that way or gay two's that way and that's how they would split people up to know which you know which meeting there was so there was a gay meeting and it was this meeting called live and let live was the very first meeting that was ever registered with central office of new york as being a special meeting so i was really lucky i walked into the doors of aa into a gay meeting it's my was my home group it's you know still sort of the home group that i would relate to you know i would go to the straight 
um, AA. But for me, uh, I really had to look at what some of my own biases were around things of, you know, the straight white man who'd come in and go, oh, my life is terrible. And I'd be like, oh, fuck off. You know, sorry, swearing. But, you know, like it's like, oh, yeah, how hard is your life, buddy? You know, oh, great. You're drinking or, you know, the stories. And so I had a really hard time kind of being in straight AA and having empathy for most of the straight men, let's say, um, or, uh, you know, that kind of hard done by, oh, my life is terrible when you're like, oh, honey, suck it up. You haven't lived half of what we've been through, you know, that kind of thing. Right. So there was a bit of a, I was very lucky. I was very protected in a, in the sense that I was able to access queer AA at the time. And, you know, 25 years ago, I think my meeting was already probably 20 years old at that time. So my meeting's about 50 years old at this time. So I was very lucky to have that exposure. That's great. One of the questions I have to ask you is, is that why do you still call yourself an alcoholic when you don't drink anymore? I think this is a really important question for some of our listeners. Why do you still call yourself an alcoholic? I think the reason is, is that I know that I'm powerless over it in the sense that if I pick up one drink, I don't know how many more I'm going to pick up. And I may only pick up one that night, but I'm going to start drinking again. And pretty soon I'm going to be back up to drinking a bottle of scotch a day. So for mm. me, I have that allergy of the body and mind. I have mm. that dis-ease that's going to tell me to keep drinking. It's, it's a physical addiction. It's a mental addiction. It's a, oh, I remember that. You know, so it, 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 it's cunning. One of the things we say in AA is it's cunning, baffling, and powerful and patient. So you know, you don't know that you're going to want to drink or maybe, or you do know, and then you're drinking. And for me, drinking means I will die. So mm. does that mean I'm an alcoholic? Yes. Because I know I'm powerless over alcohol. I know that the moment it touches my lips, it, all bets are off. Right. Mm. That doesn't mean I sit there every day of my life wishing I had a drink because I don't have that desire anymore. I don't have the desire when I'm having a bad day or a good day to drink, but that doesn't mean that it would be safe for me to drink again. So that's mm. why I say I'm an alcoholic. The other thing is, is that I think as an alcoholic, I've learned a lot of what I call the icks and isms. So the things about myself, which were the reasons why I drank, the things in my life I was powerless over. I don't think alcoholism was my problem. I think it was my mm. solution. So I think that I was constantly looking for a way to cover up my or solve my problems. And alcoholism was my, or alcohol or drugs was my solution. So that was what I used as my solution. Now I have to look at what do I do to deal with the icks and isms, which caused me to use that as a solution. So, you know, fast forward, now I'm able to find healthier tools to deal with my icks and isms around, you know, why I was restless, irritable, discontent, why I wasn't happy with who I was in the world, why I didn't feel like I fit in. But that doesn't mean that at this point in time, I could go back and never have alcohol again. One, why would I want to risk it if my life is as good as it is? And two, there's no guarantee that it's not going to step back in, cunning, baffling, powerful, and patient, and put me right back to where I was. And, you know, I wasn't well. I was not well at all. I I was having, um, when I quit drinking, I remember uh, certain things about my physical health. I mean, my liver was bad, obviously. Um, and it wasn't until probably about five years ago, I was in a meeting and I heard somebody talk about pre- alcoholic pre-strokes or pre-alcoholic strokes, which talked about the numbing of one side of the face. Um, not like Bell's palsy, but that kind of like flash of a thing. And I went, oh my God, I was having those. So I realize now how ill I really was at the time physically 
and I know that it wouldn't take long for me to get back to that place of being that person again. Mm. So alcoholic for me is, I think once it's in you, it doesn't go away. I also know that I still participate in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous um, because for me, it's about the fellowship as a reminder of what I need to do to maintain my spiritual connection or my connection with my recovery. And for me, I need a community of people to do that. Thank you for that. I just wondered what your view is on these these new recovery programs that have begun to emerge over the past 10 years, Buddhist recovery, smart recovery. What are your thoughts about that? Do you see that they are complementary to 12 steps? I think it's going to be different for everybody. Um, I know that for me, uh, for example, say a smart program where it's more about abstinence, for me, that wouldn't have worked for me because I didn't want the out. So for me, it had to be complete and total abstinence because if you left a door open for me a little bit, I was right back in there again. For some mm. people, they need that. They can't have that strictness of thinking, I could never drink again or I could never do drugs again. So for that, by all means, if that works for people, I think it does complement AA. I think it works as a program of recovery all on its own. I don't think AA is the answer. I know it was the answer for me. I know within the Buddhist um, recovery for me, I have such limited um, experience. You know, I have my my own beliefs and my own spirituality that are in that way. Can I tie them in with AA? Yes, because I think, you know, the things that we do of looking at what's inside of ourselves and what do we need to face and, you know, all of those kind of things, I think it's all a very similar path. So yes, I think it's complementary. Uh, obviously more so in the Buddhist recovery than I would in the smart recovery, because I think that the the way that we look at recovery in AA is very different than how they look at it in smart recovery. I mm. think that for me, what I did, started with, worked for me. How I expand on that as I get more sober and older, quite frankly, that's where it starts to become more of finding the things that work. You know, whether it's, you know, a Buddhist recovery, whether for me it's going to an Al-Anon meeting, whether for me it's about doing, you know, other forms of meditation or yoga or, you know, any of those things. And I think that everything has to complement, does complement with my own personal growth. So I don't think AA is that answer. I don't think there's any one answer, but I think we find the things that work for us and we use them. You know, I'm grateful that there's more than just AA because quite frankly, I don't think I would get everything I need in one recovery program. Oh, thank you for that. Just one last thing. What, what message would you give to somebody who's struggling right now? What, what would you say to them? Struggling with their addiction, struggling with their sexuality, struggling with their spirituality. What are you referring to specifically? Yeah, well, let, let's say somebody who's struggling with their, their sexuality and using alcohol and drugs to deal with their sexuality. What would you be saying mm, to them? That's a good question. I think, um, I think for me, there's a couple of things. One, the core of if the idea is that covering up emotions, using addiction, drinking alcohol, drugs is a way of covering up the feelings. For me, I kind of say, okay, that feeling of being queer or whatever you want to people refer to it as in that time and in that place, um, that's an okay feeling. 
first of all. So if you're drinking and drugging to cover up and not feel that thing, whether it's self-internalized homophobia or whatever that is, I would say, first of all, make sure that that's not the reason why that's happening. I think then from there it becomes why is the alcohol or the drugs or the partying or the addiction nobody's going to necessarily be able to say where it stems from but to look at that i think it, it comes from acceptance on both sides accepting the the gay lesbian queer and accepting the addiction whatever that be being the first step in the program is you know admitted we're powerless so i think you know anything i would say to anybody who's struggling right now would be to just kind of say okay what is What's happening for you? What is the basis? And generally, I always say, what's the fear? What's the fear underneath it? What's happening for you that you're not connecting with? And how do these two things work together? So, you know, luckily, I think, you know, skip ahead 30 some years from when I, 35 years from when I first came out, you know, people can identify as being queer now far easier than they could have 35 years ago. So, you know, for me, I think coming out then, there was a lot of, you know, the alcoholism became greater because I had that built-in internalized homophobia of like, I don't want anybody to know, and what if I know, and my family's going to disown me and all of that stuff. And, you know, so I'm sure the alcohol played into that. I think nowadays, I'm not sure that that internalized homophobia is as prevalent as it was then, but I'm sure that there's still some societal pressure that somebody's going to feel. Certainly alcoholism or any kind of partying addiction, it kind of goes in there. That said, there's not as many gay bars. We don't kind of have that same connection to our sexuality and our um, drinking partying as we did even 25 years ago, right? Yeah, that's very true. Things have changed. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And that was because that was our meeting place because we needed a place to meet, right? Mm. We didn't have social media. We didn't mm. have, uh, you know, clubs that would get together or stuff like that. Like, you know, you might have had the outdoor club that got together, you know, the lesbian outdoor club that got together and went camping together. But, you know, there wasn't there wasn't anywhere else to meet. We went to the bars. We went to the bars to mm -hmm. hook up. We went to the bars to meet people. We went to the bars to feel a part of. Right. So nowadays you've got social media, you've got Twitter or, you know, Instagram or Tinder or, you know, all of those other things that you can hook up and meet people that way. We don't need the bar anymore. Mm. Right. And people can drink in their home or they could drink in a straight bar. Or they could, mm. you know, whatever. Granted, you know, it, it's a lot different now than it was back then. Right. Mm. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. That You're was welcome. really great. I'm not sure if I gave you everything you wanted, but. No, it's great. You... I just think it's, okay. no, it was, um, that was really good. Hi. Hi. Hi, that was really great, you two. Thank you. It was great to be able to just sit here and listen and oh. get like a front row seat to that amazing talk. Oh, thank you. Mm. Mm. I'm curious, Kim, what, when you said that you weren't sure if, we, if you gave us all you, all we wanted, what, uh -huh. is there anything that comes to mind for you about what you thought we wanted or, or anything you wanted no. to expand on? No, I don't okay. think so. I think I was I was coming in pretty, um, you know, knowing what, you know, Vimasar, what you had said about looking at, uh, you know, recovery and being queer, but also looking at how did you want to incorporate it within a spirituality or spiritual practice? Mm. Did you want to look at it just from the basic of, you know, how do you know that you're not okay within yourself? You know, and I think I wanted to try and make sure I 
touch some of those things because those are the most important things within me and what I struggle with or, or not struggle, I guess the word is try and um, focus on, you know, that spiritual, that um, self-analysis, um, mm-hmm. those things, right? Which I think is a lifelong lesson. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So just wanted to make sure that if there was anything more in there that you wanted or, you know, and I also come at it from a place of, um, I've got a lot of meetings in my back pocket. You know, I've been saying this lately that I've got, I'm, I'm, I think as we age, we find a certain amount of, um, desire to find the simplicity in our lives, the desire to find what's really important in our lives. Right. So 15 years ago, I wouldn't have said that my mental, emotional and spiritual balance was as important to me as I would now. Right. So I think that that's part of one of the things that comes with age and comes with, you know, time and getting older period right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I relate to that a lot. thing again <laughs> yeah I that's my favorite thing about recovery and what my recovery has been about is just really because I, I actually started recovery um, like my first experience in recovery I was like 18 and I went to yeah. 10 day meditation retreats and then I kind of left that for a while and when I came back it's like it's so nice to come back to that spirituality and back to like just mm. being able to take care of myself, being able to like thrive emotionally yeah. and spiritually. It's like, yeah. what the fuck? Like, why was I not doing this the whole time? Cause it's well, way and then better. You realize, and then you realize it's like coming home. Why didn't I get this before? Mm-hmm. You know, but at the mm-hmm. same time, I have to say that if it wasn't for my addiction, I wouldn't have all these gifts of the universe now. Right. It's mm-hmm. like, I think sometimes I'm like, what about those people who never had to do any self-analysis? How did they get through their lives? Like we have a real blessing that we're doing mm-hmm. this recovery, this yeah. self-analysis, this spiritual journey that some people never have to do. So, you mm-hmm. know, sometimes I go, I'm grateful I'm an alcoholic because I get to do all of this work on myself, right? And I tell you so what, I, get that. I was going to say, actually, I tell you what, those of us in recovery, we were far, we've been far better supported during this pandemic and what's happening now because we've had places to go to yeah oh yeah sure if community hi i'm vimla sara president of the buddhist recovery network Our mission is to help promote the use of Buddhist teachings and practices to help people recover from the suffering caused by addictive and or compulsive behaviors. Our organization is a volunteer-run nonprofit, which has expenses. We offer free monthly live teachings on the Academy, free resources on our website, and all our podcasts are free. We also organize a bi-yearly summit where many of us come together. We rely on the generosity of you, our listeners, and our interviewees in order to produce these offerings. We are asking you to donate to help with our expenses. Thank you. And to show our gratitude for your support, all Patreon supporters will receive access to special guided meditations. To unlock these, 
please offer your support by going to patreon.com forward slash Buddhist Recovery Network. Again, patreon.com forward slash Buddhist Recovery Network. Thank you so much for your generosity. May all beings be free from the roots and the causes of suffering. May all beings be at peace.